Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is the chain I.O. story with my friend Brian Glick. How's it going, Brian? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you. You've got a very interesting product. I, I talk to a lot of people, obviously, on my podcast, and you, you solve one of these problems that I think virtually everybody who's in technology has, <laughs> so I'm very excited to talk to you about it. But first, Brian, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today. Uh, sure. So I'm Brian Glick. I am the founder and CEO at Chain.io. We, as a company, help the build the, the nervous systems that sit under people's TMSs and ERPs and, and all the systems and make them all work together in a way that makes sense so that things can move around the world. Uh, and I'm currently dialed in from hometown from uh, Philadelphia. It's been a, been a little while since I've been back here, but uh, no more travel for the rest of the year, hopefully. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. So you started to say what you guys do. So you're the you're a, a technology platform that kind of lays over all the other technologies to make sure they're all talking, right? Yeah. It's um, you know a very complicated universe in supply chain of systems both inside of companies and between companies. So if you think of everything from a sourcing purchase order, having to get to a supplier overseas, to bookings having to be made with ocean carriers, to customs filings, to the accounting transactions that support all of that, you can have 115 plus companies involved in a single international freight move. Is that most and of what every you guys one of them are involved we in? Do, yeah, we do it. We do some domestic here in the U.S., but primarily we deal with things that cross borders and air and ocean is, is probably the largest piece of our business. And, you know, across all those companies, you can have literally millions of permutations of different ways that data has to move around. And so that's a really hard problem that we decided to take on, how to actually make all of that happen. Yeah. And you said something interesting to me before we hit record is that Nobody's ever, you know, the user, there's no user interface where you're, you know, where a shipper or a customs guy is going into your system. They're going into the, your customer systems and you're the one who's saying, don't worry, I got you all connected. You're that digital nervous system. Yeah. As a, you know, probably a really good example, uh, one of the projects we've done with a, where a large global freight forwarder, one of the top 20 uses our platform where if you go on their website and say, I want to move five cartons from Shanghai to, to Indianapolis, and they have to calculate the pricing that they're going to show you on the website. Well, they have a different pricing engine for their air freight than their ocean freight and their trucking. So their website has to go retrieve all of that information. So what their website does, it calls our network. Our network then creates three separate calls to all those systems brings all that data back together so they can put it on the website. Then you hit buy now, and someone has to take all of that information and get it into their TMS. And that's in a completely different file format and all the different. So we do 
Think of us as the traffic cops that are routing all of these different packets of information back and forth so that so that what seems really simple to you, which is you just said, I want the price and I want to buy a container. You know, there's thousands of different things that had to go on in the background for that to happen. Yep. You know, I hear it a lot now about silos. And what we mean by when I say silos is like that, like a grain silo. It's got all the information about warehousing in one. And then the next silo has all the transportation information. And then the other has orders from the customer and then the customer system. So we all have these these data silos and they don't all connect. And that's kind of what you do. And what 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 occurred to me when you were saying this is when we first started getting technology in this business, it seemed as if, my God, I got a TMS. We solved all the world's problems. Like yeah. we're all set. <laughs> and now you look and go, nice try. Good start. <laughs> so, some might say we got a TMS and created all of the world's problems. So Yeah. I mean, it's just the human nature. As soon as you solve one problem, you find we have a whole bunch more. But um, we'll get more into what Chain IO does and how you got there. But first, tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Tell us a little bit about your career before you started Chain IO. So I'm from the East Coast here. I grew up in southern New Jersey and then moved across the river to Philadelphia 20 some odd years ago. I college dropout. I wouldn't say a proud college dropout, but I certainly realized that different people have different learning styles and that that whole sitting in a room and taking notes thing was 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 not for me. That was in the 90s when it was So what really... did you what did you study? <laughs> what did I study? I studied not going to class. <laughs> I, I I had that class. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I I went to George Washington in in DC. Oh wow. Found out there was a lot so you of paid good money not time. to learn. Yeah, but only for a year. So if you, if you prorated out, it was it was it wasn't that expensive, and it wasn't and it certainly wasn't that expensive back then. But uh, I learned there was a lot more things to do in DC that were interesting and you know frankly were educational, but just were not in a classroom with somebody somebody talking at you. And so that I was lucky that that was in the '90s, and I had already in high school been working professionally installing computer networks, so I knew how to do the computer thing. So what did you get interested that took you away from school? Gosh, DC is an amazing place to live. I mean, just just going to all the Smithsonian museums could consume a year. Not to mention all the <laughs> all the concerts and you know hanging out in Georgetown and just kind of being out and oh, about. They had that big punk scene. They had the big punk scene back then. They did. They did. You know, we used to we used to spend a lot of time at the nine thirty club for anybody who's uh, any DC natives. I know that's that's not in the same place, but it's still around. You know, but I think what happened was when I left school, I was okay. Well, I I still have to you know have an apartment, and I have to certainly not gonna and it wasn't gonna be supported by the parents. Eat it, eat every day, and live indoors, and all that. Yeah, the, those things are kind of kind of you know that hierarchy of needs thing kind of kicked in, and so I got a job back in Philly, installing dumb terminals and running green screen, the cabling for green screen terminals at a customs broker. Didn't know what customs was, kind of had this vague idea. For those who don't know what a dumb terminal is, tell, tell. <laughs> So if you 
go to rent a card enterprise you'll still see because they still use them when they have when you just see the black and white green screen it used to be now that's a computer that renders that but it used to be just a physical it was like a tv with a keyboard that was wired back to the mainframe so you're you didn't it looked like a computer on your desk but there was no computer it was just the keyboard and a tv attached to uh to back to the mainframe so this was predates windows yep so before we had the personal computer, we had mainframes. And so rather than having that personal computer that you love so much, we had, or a tablet or phone or whatever, that you had that everything went back to a mainframe. And if it was moving slow, by the way, I was worked on CAD systems early in my career <laughs> and we worked in mainframes and I didn't ever get to touch those. I was on the other side, but we had to work in these cold, like you had to keep those things cold because they really got hot and, uh, it was a whole, I mean, we used computers and we didn't have the internet. I mean, that was really predated the internet. I always think about it back in the eighties, I was using computers every day for, for my job, but not in automotive, but we didn't have, we didn't have a sense for what computers could really do. One of the, one of the things I had to do in that first job was if, if it snowed, I lived the closest to the office. And so I would have to walk down 7th Street in Philadelphia, kind of past the Liberty Bell and what have you, to make sure that I got in in time to dial a physical phone every morning and flip a switch so that we could send what is now part of Dow Chemicals. We had to send their customs filings to them overnight. And if you didn't do it, if you didn't hit the switch at the right time, both systems would kind of crash out because they expected to be able to communicate with each other and you physically dialed a phone. It's kind of, if, it, if anyone really wants to know what that was like, go go back and watch the Matthew Roderick movie from the 80s, War Games, where he yes, uh, dials the phone to, connect movie. Into the, to the mainframe and, and take and almost blows up the earth. So it's kind of kind of felt like that at the time. Yeah, one, one like, quick story, just uh, my own experience with mainframes. I was never, was never going to be a programmer, but I had to take... I think it was Fortran, some old language. Probably <laughs> it's like learning Latin now, I guess. But um, I had to—you had to make some sort of some sort of program, and then you had to put it into the system. And they made a real point of don't do this, don't do this. Anything that would make the mainframe go in, do loops like over and over, do this like basically what they did in war games. And I remember one time being in this big lab where there's probably forty people working, and and then. I realized, oh, that program I created is put the mainframe into infinite loop. And what happens is the entire, you can see everybody who's working starts looking around going, what's going on? Why is the computer so slow? And somebody goes, somebody, somebody did, I, I forgot what they called it, but basically it was an infinite loop of problems that I had given the, the computer. So I was just kind of casually like, closed my book. I was like, oh, all done. All right. And then, and then as I'm walking out, somebody goes, it's that guy. This is why he, because everyone knew this is the guilty party is going to slither out of the room. <laughs> anyway. Well, just, just to give a sense of how far we've come since then, the, when we started this company, so this is my second software company, and we, we used what was a new technology about five years ago, which was serverless technology, where we don't manage any computers at all, and the cloud providers manage the computers. What that means is, and this is, this is really amazing, you know, we, instead of having a pre-size, okay, well, how much server do I need or how much do I need to buy, it all scales magically. So when, when our without us doing anything because we use this technology, 
we had a customer who was supposed to move like five, 10, 15 uh, shipments a day, probably for the first couple months, and they were going to scale up to hundreds or thousands. Well, their IT department thought it'd be a good idea on a Saturday to see what happened if they sent us a couple of million transactions over the course of an hour, just to see what would happen. What ended up happening was our bill with our cloud provider went up about 80 cents. And that was the total impact yeah. of that. Through through the past 30 years of my career, that could have been two months of recovering from that. Right. And, the, and you used to have to have your computing power local in a server, maybe in your hallway oh, yeah. or in a specialized room. But we now when they say put it in the cloud, it's guys like you who put everything in that cloud. But the, the first, first quote unquote, we didn't call them SaaS companies back then. We called them ASPs about 20 years ago that I worked for. The cloud was a server that was physically under my desk. We were running the supply chain for a very large retail company under my desk. And so you would, if you were, got us, and I was just saying this, if you had a transportation management system, I don't even know what, let's just say 30 years ago when the first ones came, pre-internet, you would get CDs that sent to you and you would have that server in your in your building, on-premises. That's what they mean when they say on-prem or on-premises. But the challenge was if you didn't have enough computing power, you might have to upgrade your system. Now there's upgrades happening in the cloud all the time where you say, oh, I need extra computing power. I can get it, <laughs> right? I can buy that. Then it was... Yeah, I mean, it used to be sometimes it would be three, four months to plan an upgrade too. Like that was not not easy. <laughs> so you So you started working. How did you get into... How did you get into transportation logistics? Yeah, randomly sort of found it. I was probably the youngest person to ever circle the job in the newspaper and apply with a letter that I mailed to a customs broker. And luckily, after about a year, that customs broker spun off a software company. Uh, we were called Freight Tech, and we built sort of we called it supply chain visibility, but that, that term means something different nowadays. At the time, it was the order to cash process. So it was yes. issuing purchase orders to vendors and, and tracking the purchase order and all of the regulatory and all of the financial and everything that had to then happen sort of for that sourcing process on, on the inbound supply chain. And we did that for some pretty big companies. Then we got acquired. That all became part of Osborne Hesse, who became OHL, who is now Geodis. And I left there after about a decade to start my own, my first company, uh, which did something even less interesting than what we do now. We, would ma we managed the uh, tariff numbers for customs for large companies and uh, sold that to another freight company that is now part of Maersk and left prior to that acquisition to start this about five years ago. So so you guys did sell your old company? Yeah. So, well, so yes, I, my first one, I sold about a year in this one. This one's lasted a bit longer. Yep. So when and why did you start Chain.io? So I was running the IT department at a 3PL and customs broker and international freight forwarder. And I also was very deeply involved in sales and executive account management. And what I realized was that the integration was the point at which everything would fall apart. Uh, we could pitch our service. We could do get the customer completely convinced that, that we were the right provider for them. And they would say, okay, and all we need to do is integrate with your system. And they go, okay, well, get in line. It's going to be a year. Uh, and that was the customer. 
And so we would improvise and we would adapt and we would figure out how to make it happen faster than that. But it was extremely painful and we had to do it every day. At the same time, we were running seven, effectively, we were running seven different TMSs. It was, you know, different things for different parts of the business. And we had to make all of that work together and we had to make that work on our website. And we were way ahead of the curve back in 2014, 2015 with that kind of stuff. But I could see that both of those problems were getting harder and that this idea of thinking about integration or thinking about how data moves as the last part of a project is backwards. That you should think about data and how data moves around your company as a first level problem because it's it's how you break down those silos, right? Is that you think about how does this data flow through my company and that maps out your business processes. And when you map out your business processes, then systems get easy. So they are ideas to put, turn the entire way people think about data in their business on its head. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting when you think about all those systems, disparate systems that don't necessarily, weren't, they were developed to solve a specific problem. And that problem wasn't, connecting to the next system because that in in a lot of ways software providers in the past at least thought of it like i'm solving all the world's problems why would i connect to some inferior system down upward in the system oh, yeah. uh, downstream or upstream i don't care about that i'm solving transportation management right and and i'm not being critical of it it's just they weren't developed that way i think now everybody who develops a, a new system for the supply chain recognizes I have to plug in somewhere, but we didn't look at it that way. Well, and, and one of the things that changed a lot is, and I think venture capital has a lot to do with this, is um, companies are creating much more focused, narrow products. So it used to be very sexy to say, I'm going to be the next SAP or the next Oracle and develop this thing that runs your whole company or so you know on the international side that that was sort of the model of cargo wise right which is i'm going to be your accounting system i'm going to be your crm i'm going to be your your transportation management system be the whole thing and what many you know if you start a company today the way people goes i want to be salesforce salesforce does one thing well right they manage your your sales and so i want to manage you know we've gotten to the point where people say I'm going to manage the visibility of your container while it is inside a container terminal. And I'm going to be amazing at that one thing. And so when you do that, what it means is a world where, you know, as a 3PL or as a shipper, you now have 50, 100 things and, and it becomes your responsibility to stitch them together. And that's, and that's the problem you saw. And so you said this. Exactly. So you started Chain.io with the idea that there is such thing as for the, for shippers, and again, I'll, I'll say this: I'm an automotive guy. I think in terms of order to cash, and then what kills me is when somebody says, "We'll give you end to end visibility." And you go, "Really? From when to when? From the time I pick up your freight to the time I drop it off?" I'm like, two days, <laughs> three days, maybe. <laughs> that, that that is the end to end visibility you gave me. I want order to cash, which could be 16 weeks. And to your point, dozens of people touching it, especially if you're talking about freight forwarding. The, the adage that I always use is that I used to say there's only two things that matter in supply chain. Available to promise date and landed cost. When, can, when am I going to have it where it needs to be and how much is it going to cost to get it there? 
but you have to answer that at a SKU level, not at a, so nobody, it's not where is my container, it's where is the product that I promised my customer, whether my customer is a plant or whether my customer is, you know, a consumer, I promised them something. Am I going to meet that promise? And am I going to do it in a way that doesn't put me out of business? Now there's a third component to that, which is, and am I going to do it without destroying the environment, which is carbon and scope three emissions reporting and all of those things. But you can, if you can answer those questions, you're if you can contribute to answer to those questions, you're doing the right thing. Otherwise, you're probably creating a distraction. Excellent. Excellent. So when you started, did you say, I'm going to reach out and start talking to companies? How, do, how did you start this company? Did you reach out and say, I know you have this problem. Let me develop something. Or did you say, I'm going to develop something and then I'm going to start exploring? reaching out and experimenting with uh, some new some customers we started reaching out and talking to customers day one it was you know having come out of the industry and having a pretty deep network we were able to go out find companies similar to the company i was working at and we actually did not use them as as one of our initial customers really to keep a firewall so people understood that that it was something separate but we found similar companies where we knew where we knew that we could contribute you know, which is really how we ended up in the international supply chain space was really that was my background and, and the team's background. Yep. Now, when you are creating this, it's a, am I right to call it a digital platform? Yeah, sure. So do you own that digital platform and these companies are coming in and using this or are these, this is not considered a one-off where somebody says, I use Ch Chainio's guys and they created this system for me? Oh, no, no. It's it's a platform that you run your data on. So what it what it looks like is uh, so that the the, can, the sort of consumer grade version is a company called Zapier, but the idea is that I can I'm going to pick this module I you know I say I run this TMS internally and my customer runs this TMS and I'm going to pick this one on the left and that one on the right and they're going to wire together but. It, the data moves through our cloud and we have uh, all sorts of processing that happens so that those two systems, which can't talk to each other because one might be 30 years old and one might have been written last week, that they both, we broker all of that data connectivity through our cloud. Oh, so you, you, you help the boomers talk to the the Gen X. We <laughs> or the very Gen much <laughs> too, or, or even whatever, whatever generations after that. Yes. <laughs> so. So you mentioned the consumer grade technology, Z Zapier, that's Z-A-P-I-E-R? Yes. And I've used that before. And, and that would connect. So I could say, hey, I use this CRM and I want to, I want to connect that to my calendar system. And it's pretty easy to use and it's pretty inexpensive, but it's to your point, it's not connecting real complicated systems. Right. And, and it doesn't, it doesn't know what a bill of lading is. And it doesn't know what the difference is between, you know, and this is where supply chain gets hard. We're not really good at words as an industry. So it doesn't know that when one system has a thing called estimated arrival date, depending on the terms of that shipment, that might be the arrival, you know, again, in that example of that package going from Shanghai to Indianapolis, that might be the arrival in Los Angeles. And if you put that arrival date into an ERP that thinks it's the arrival date on the loading dock at the plant in Indy, you're going to have a really big problem. So we, part of what our cloud does is it takes that arrival date and says, okay, well, we understand what that means based on the profile of that shipment is the arrival at the port and that the 
other system does not call that an arrival date. It calls it an in-transit transfer date or whatever the case may right. be. And we make sure we don't just stick the two arrival fields together because that's horrible situations. I've experienced that where one of my customers, oh, yeah. uh, this was on a consulting project I was on, they're like, in the system, it says delivered. And I said, yes, it does. And they go, but it didn't deliver. And I said, okay, so I'm looking at a whole you know, list of delivered then you get to, with the 3PL and they're like, yeah, it did deliver. I said, to where? Well, to this warehouse. I said, but that's not my customer. Well, yeah, but we delivered it. I was like, you understand though, that my customers reading this, delivered is half done to them, right? Yeah, and, and no one in those situations is wrong. It's, right. We're just working with different terms for the same. You use the same point. term for different things. We're using yes. the wrong words. We're not. We're not all on the same page. Communication is broken down somewhere along the line. So, anyway, so you started going out, and again, mostly international. But this problem is going to also be on the domestic side, but especially bad when there's the international handoffs. And so you started reaching out and saying, "We're going to talk to some people who we know have this problem," and. Uh, was this an immediate hit? Did they go, oh my God, yes, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I would say we're, we're, we're like most Hollywood stars. We're, we're an overnight success if you start counting from the day we got famous, right? So, <laughs> you know, the first, I would say the first year and a half, two years was a lot of experimentation to try to figure out how to take something we knew how to do really well for one company and make it generic enough that it could be done for many companies. And that, you know, and actually the hardest part of that was, was we're creating a new paradigm, a new way of thinking about the problem. And so you have to do a lot of education and you have to say, okay, I have a software that I don't really have a word for what this is because it's not the way you've thought about the problem before. And so it takes a while to get market to, it takes years to get people to kind of start thinking differently and approaching problem, you know, kind of the same way that the first smartphones, you know, pre-iPhone tried to recreate desktop interfaces on a little device, right? So you had the Windows original smartphones where like it had a start button on a four inch screen and, you know, you had to kind of break people's brains a little bit to go to this Oh my God, like one of the early complaints about the iPhone was I can't multitask. I can't look at two windows at the same time because, but that wasn't appropriate anymore. It was, you know, we were in a different world. And so it took us a long, long while to start being able to tell the story of digital transformation, which is, I say that now everyone knows what that means. In 2016, that was not a term that was meaningful to most people in supply well, chain. You talk about words meaning different things to different people. When you say digital transformation, I always hear this term, and it does that is so open to interpretation. Oh, without a doubt. <laughs> but I want to talk a little bit about your different market segments and the value you guys add. Um, so, who's like your one of your bigger market segments, and what problem do they have when you reach out? When, when you reach out to them, or they reach out to you? So we think about three different groups of people that we bring value to. And they're all involved in most of our transactions. So and we, we draw it as a triangle. It is the freight forwarders as a, as a general group, whether they're international or domestic, the shippers, and the software companies that support them. And the, the key to our business is that we don't move value from one to the other. We create more value for all of them. 
so you know the one the one we sell the most direct contracts to is the international freight forwarders uh, so they're either they're coming to us and saying i've got nine systems internally and what do i do like i can't we're frozen like we can't we've got people rekeying data between them or you know we can't quite figure out how to you know get this reporting engine into our website when we have to pull the data out of 10 different warehouse management platforms that we have around the world and kind of all these big data problems and then the software companies actually become really interesting here because we have these plugins for them but that means that when they go to that company and say i'm going to be your 11th warehouse management system they say oh and by the way your integration is going to be fine because we're on the chain.io network and you're already on the chain.io network and you're just going to plug us in instead of spending a year adding us to 14 different little initiatives that are going on around your company and i imagine they look at the first nine systems and say you will also be part of the chain IO system if we're going to give. Them yeah, the well, yeah, and that's we. I had a CIO tell me recently. She said that uh, she goes, "I don't evaluate software that isn't on your network anymore because I'm not dealing with the problem. Because I've just decided that I don't want to. It's not worth buying anything if I have to go deal with this integration thing and I can't just call my chain IO rep and say add it. You know, and maybe you can solve this problem. I just throw throw a problem out that I experienced when I was at a three PL. We had automotive automotive clients, and one in particular said, we're, we're managing all of their inbound shipments for them. So mostly LTL, but some truckload. And it was our job to get all of their 300-some suppliers to use our system. And so that took a while. So every week we would meet, and I would say, here's who's non-compliant. And non-compliant meant they didn't use our system to book that shipment. And here's how much extra money you paid because it went that way. And so it got to the point where I've got my guys say, giving me a list like every week. Here's who's not using our system, who's been taught, you know, who's been informed. And it's months and months into the process. So I start calling some of these myself and saying, hey, what is going on? And I finally, I remember talking to a guy and he said, we're a big automotive supplier. We work with all like 10 major automotive companies around the world, the Europeans, the Japanese, the Americans, the transplants, everybody. And I was like, okay. And they said, we are working on, he's just, you you just said it, nine different inbound logistics programs. And we're no longer, we, so we're logging into different systems every single day. And he said, so we just got to the point where we're busy. Our job is to move freight off this dock and into trucks, not, he goes, so we just picked one. And we're going to use that for all of our shipments. And it wasn't ours. <laughs> and, and I remember thinking to myself, is, how am I going to tell him you're non-compliant? He's like, so what? We failed him. We not not individually failed him, but the, the system failed him in that there was no way for him to do his job right. So there's been a, we're trying to make a mentality shift in the way that larger companies think about that problem. So if you're the automotive company in that scenario. Or 10 early different automotive companies. Yeah, yeah. So early in my career, I managed the or helped manage the exact same process for Ralph Lauren, right? We had hundreds of overseas suppliers, little you know garment factories and what have you. And we would make them, if they were non-compliant that week, they had to get on a phone call in front of all of their peers at their, at their competitors and say, and go through the compliance report. And if they had a good scorecard, they didn't have to join the call, right? We used to just right. badger them until it was resolved. And that was the right thing at the time, but we gave them one way to connect or two. You had EDI and you had our website. 
the tech has now gotten to the point where we can meet those companies where they are and where we can say to them, okay, you've got 10 automotive companies using 10 different TMSs, pick one, give us the data and from that TMS, and we will coordinate it You'll and use it. the APIs or EDI or XML files, or it'll be this, that, and the other thing for all of them, because they all not, they're all not going to be something that was built two weeks ago and has an API. But we'll go make broker that so that ever we can meet everyone where they are instead of trying to create a world where oh, everyone yeah. suddenly agrees. And and that that's what we mean about creating value for everyone is. In that situation, the automotive company gets better visibility. The trucker... The 3PL would be happier. <laughs> ...gets one thing. The 3PL stops getting yelled at and can provide their value, which is aggregating the data. You know, And the software companies aren't getting fielding a million customization requests from that trucker going, okay, I need you to reprogram your system to now work with these 10 other systems. They just give the data to Chain. Chain's going to go make it work with the world. Yeah, and... You're absolutely right. We were, you said you were meeting them where they're at. And I love that because after I talked to that guy, I couldn't very well say, well, you need to do the right thing. We needed to do the right thing. And it wasn't as if I could go, okay, now that I know the problem, I'm going to call 10 other automotive companies and say, what, what 3PL are you using? So I can talk to them and so we can all coordinate. Nope. It was just, that was the dead end for me. So there was, so now I could call chain IO and say, Hey, this is the problem. And again, it was a big problem because there was probably our non-compliance report would say these at the, after a year, after two years, probably I could say, here's how much extra you paid every week. It was like a couple thousand dollars. It was, a, it was always a, a couple thousand dollars that my customer paid extra because they had people outside our system. And we could easily pay for a solution that would connect the dots, connect all the digital dots. And here's the real cost. The real cost is not the couple thousand dollars. It's when you're that 3PL or, you know, or 4PL and that data is not in your system timely and accurately. And then you're unable to give the automotive provider, you tell them something's going to arrive and it isn't because the, the trucker didn't update that, the, that the, there was an issue with the pickup. And then a plant shuts down for two days. Oh, right. Yeah. So what's the cost of the plant? The cost is never the two thousand dollars. It's the it's the plant being down because, the you know, I, I was talking to a, a very large food and beverage company with a, you know, one that one that you would you would buy at the convenience store. And they're like, yeah, we're having trouble making product because we have all this visibility, but we can't tie it back to the part and we can't tie it back to the ingredients. And we're having shutdowns at plants because everybody's doing their job and we can't figure out how to mesh the silos together to actually get a picture of whether we're going to have, whether the bin is going to be full at the moment we need it to be full. Right. Right. And you're absolutely right. Empty shelves or a, a stopped assembly line or production line is that's, that's the real problem. And yeah, it, it, it used to drive me crazy. I had one customer, great customer, but every once in a while when we'd have our QBR, they go, oh, by the way, there was like three shipments outside of, of your system. Like we did a flatbed and I was like, why did you do the flatbed? Not through us. They go, 
And they say, well, we thought they'd be cheaper or something. I don't know. If we would do it for free just not to have my numbers screwed up here. Like, I, would, like, I don't care about. And so not having good data is, is increasingly a problem, right? So if I can't, if I can't have predictive analytics because I don't have the data in my system, I'm losing big opportunities also. So to your point, it's not just the, uh, the uh, non-compliance cost is just the beginning. Anyway, so you mentioned freight forwarders. That's one big, one big customer of yours. Shippers, who was who are doing international, and then you mentioned the software companies. Like a typical typical project for you. How does that? How does it start? How long does it take to get from the time they call you to the time they're seeing a lot of value? So there's a little bit of variability there. Uh, our customers can come on, be on our site purchase our product and, and if they have a a need that is you know accommodated by the product and they understand their own business can be same day next day for certain things you know we have customers come to us and say hey, i need to get all the data out of my tms and i need you to give it to my analytics team and we say okay we'll just turn on the plugin that takes the data out of your tms and give it to your analytics team that can be the same day oftentimes what we find is that we are an enabling technology to very large projects that where the project itself can take two or three years. For instance, that company that was re-envisioning their entire pricing and, and sales workflow. You know, uh, over a two-year project, we probably represent a f- you know a month's worth of work, but spread across two years, right? So you know where we had to build a custom connector for their website, and we had to spend some time. And this is what our solutions engineers do: is even though we're a software company. We help our customers understand how to use our software to solve business problems. And that often, my my personal view is you should spend eight weeks working to prepare for a two-week project because otherwise you can spend one week preparing for a six-month project. So we spend a lot of time with our customers making sure that they use our technology to solve real business problems, not just to move data around. And that that's the fun part, frankly, for me. So you got so you have consultants on the on your team that say I'm not just going to let I'm not just going to give you access to my platform and you're going to do it yourself. You're saying we'll bring a, a team, an account management team, a consultant, the techies, and we'll make this happen for you. Yeah, yeah, and, and make sure that you know we you know sometimes the failed projects are the ones that explain it the best we had a customer come to us and and it was again another one of these pricing situations where they they were pricing locally all over the world and they're buying the system to centralize their how they were going to do pricing and they struggled to understand that the tech was working it did exactly what it was supposed to do we were moving data between the systems but they refused to tell their offices that they had to use it, you know, and, and so they didn't address the underlying business problem. And, you know, there's no such thing as a, as a technology project. There's business projects that have technology components to them, right? And so that's where we actually try to spend a lot of time upfront with our customers is laying out a roadmap, making sure they understand that we're there to enable this digital transformation, but that digital transformation does affect people and change management and all the things that you have to do in a company alongside the tech to make things work. And, you know, the 
I would say the danger of coming from the inside and starting a tech company versus being an outsider who comes into an industry, we know these things and we're not afraid to talk about them and about how they're, that's the hard part and the challenging part. A lot of companies are just coming and say, oh, no, 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 just buy our software and everything is just going to be magic. And then they just deal with it at the end when it isn't. You know, we like to make sure we do it right up front, kind of measure twice, cut once. You know, I've heard about the problem in over the last six months or a year about We've had consolidation in some of the transportation management systems where one company buys another. And some of these companies that are impacted, the users of that software might have an on-premise system and they might have bought it 20 years ago and might have millions of transactions in it. And they're now being said, hey, you have to move. We're not going to support that old product anymore. You have to move with to our new, new cloud-based system. Does that help in these kind of, um, I don't know what you can call that, migrations from an old system to a newer system? So those are always challenging moments, and there's a lot of strategies for that. The, the one thing that we advise companies just as a general statement, even before we get there, is make sure that you understand how your customers interact with your systems. And that whether that's EDI or whether that's your website or whether you've, you know, wired up something that sends them a text when it, when it, uh, make sure you, you really understand how all that works and that it's either in a portal like ours where you can just see all the transactions or well-documented so that when those moments happen, it's very rarely the, oh my God, my user, I have to retrain my users to use a different screen. That's the problem. The problem is your interactions with your customers. And so you should never be, it's kind of business risk management. You should never be in a state where you don't know what your migration path would be if your TMS went away tomorrow, right? It might be hard, but it should not be something that you're figuring out at that moment. Yeah, well, and from what I understand, and you think about how that might've worked is the biggest and most sophisticated shippers would have been the ones who adopted TMS first, right? And so these might be, big consumer brands or an automotive company, and they could have millions of transactions in a year. And and then at some point, their software company gets bought, and then the, and everyone's like, don't worry, you're all right, we'll support you, we'll support you. And then at some point, they're like, we're not going to support that on-premise system, we're going to migrate you to the cloud. And I think it's probably at that moment, like, oh my God, <laughs> we're doomed. Well, <laughs> we're... And, and frankly, everyone should be prepared for that because the cloud delivery model is not first of all it's not controversial anymore i remember when it was and second i remember when i didn't know what they were talking every, about for five yeah, years oh, absolutely. <laughs> i remember we didn't use those words for it right it was just we're going to host your software in our building instead of your building but the it is better for everyone you know and i think the biggest way that it's better is the reduction in capital expenditures and 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 while companies that measure themselves on on EBITDA may not love this all the CFOs may not love it all the time, but when you're in the freight business, if your spend flexes with your volume versus being a fixed cost every month, that's a good thing. You know, you, you think when times are good, people get mad because they're paying more, but when times are bad, you know, and, and right now they're not great. That ability to flex your spend down is is an incredible and, and, and it's asset going, to it's, a business. And it's going down because I'm not using the cloud as much, correct? Yeah, because I'm not, you know, I was doing, you know, I was cutting 5,000 bills a week last week, and this week I'm cutting 2,000 bills. Well, I can't lay off my people just like that, but my software spend can go down overnight. 
That's a good thing. Got it. So when you're working with these companies, I mean, when I look at when, at the end of the year, when you look at your own revenues, does your money come from like an ongoing payment that these customers make, or is it the actual implementations where you got to have? Oh a team no, it's involved? it's it's an ongoing. So companies that are on our network pay an annual license fee to be on the network, and then each connection they have is uh, is okay. an incremental. That makes so sense. you're 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 you are paying usage based we don't get super granular for lots of uninteresting reasons but you know you're you're paying so if i if i'm connecting to 10 things i'm paying more than if i'm connecting to two things basically excellent so let me ask you switch gears a little bit and talk to you so you've grown a nice size company and again i love what you're doing because it seems like a problem that comes up on my podcast all the time which is silos that don't connect to the next silo and again i think every every software that was ever created in the first you know, until 10 years ago, five years ago, thought, you don't need to connect to another system. This is it. <laughs> we'll connect to your ERP and boom, you're done. Or we are your ERP. You're done. <laughs> right? And and then now we realize that that's not the case. And people are creating tons of these killer apps and they're going to continue and they're going to add a lot of value and we're going to want to connect to them. And we need we need that digital backbone to say, or digital nervous system to say, I'm going to connect your arms to your legs, to your brain, and and you're going to be able to walk. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, again, it was something that is, I mean, it's, it's one of those problems that isn't obvious. It isn't sexy in the sense of like, you don't get to make, can't believe let's say pie charts are sexy, but you don't get to make charts on a screen. You don't get to do analytics. You're not, you you're to, not the interface. You don't get to. Yeah, you're not you're not run, you know, up in front of the room yelling and screaming, but you know, it's kind of cool to build something that facilitates everything, right? That if I if I look at the that what our network does and and the amount of second and third and fourth tier contact we have to all these transactions moving around the world, you know, and knowing that things are getting places and you know, that people know where they are and that they can pay for them. You know, that's, that's sometimes real change is, is, you know, the, per, the people who built the highway system, right. Not the person who builds the Ferrari, right. like, like, like which one has a bigger impact on the world, the Ferrari or the guy who makes the asphalt. Yes. Exactly. Well, exactly. And I will say this, this is what you said. It's, it's not the sexy. It's not your, nobody knows your name, but it's like the supply chain. You know, it's like, uh, or the railroad or the highways, this is, this is connecting the world. So I love it. So t tell me a little bit about, I'm switching gears on you again. I was, oh, no worries. You grew a very successful company here. And I know you at some point went, got some venture capital money. What have you learned along the way? I know this would be a separate podcast, but just give us a few bullet points on what you've learned along the way about growing a great company. So I've started two companies. The first one we sold within a year, and this one we're now on a on a much longer journey. I still believe that the the number one foundational thing is build a hundred year company, even if it's even if it's gonna not be yours for a hundred years, right? Do the right things the right way, you know. And I'll, I'll flatter I'll flatter your Michigan roots here. We have a, our venture <laughs> capitalists are largely hubbed in and around Michigan, which I had never set foot in the state before I raised money, but this idea of taking the long view and building something with a culture inside of the company that is based on, you know, principles of, of being ki of kindness and empathy for our customers and, and really doing the right thing. 
that's how you build something that's going to stand the test of time. Uh, and I think in supply chain in particular, if you're not building to stand the test of the time, people figure it out real fast and they, you know, and trust dissipates. And when trust dissipates, you're, you're done. You know, we, we all know each other in this business, so you can't, you can't, you can't just fake it. And so more than anything, our, you know, our kind of cultural principles are what drive the success of the business. Oh, that's great. So you, is your company remote? Do you have people all over the world or are you all in Philly? Fully, fully remote. I would say we probably have a little hub of us here in Philly, maybe 10% of the company. We have a bit of a hub developing out of happenstance in uh, Ontario, Canada. We've got people uh, in South America. We've got people in Europe. We've got people in, uh, God, I, I see our, our state tax filings in the US for, for a company of under 100 people. We're in something like 15 or 17 states. It's uh, wherever, if you're smart, we'll hire you. And smart and willing to work in a way that fits remote work, which is that you're able to organize yourself and act like an adult and not be micromanaged. So given that, we will hire people wherever they are. And our customers are, you know, we have customers on almost every continent and there's nothing in our business that is US centric except for the currency in which we bill. Yep. Well, you talked about with freight forwarders and that being one of your main focuses. I, I remember writing an article when I was still blogging and it was ta talking about the difference between domestic transportation and inter international. And so I think, you know, you could move a truckload. There's the shipper. There might be a broker, but then there's a carrier. There's three, four guys, maybe, maybe one time zone removed from each other, maybe all in the same time zone. Freight forwarding is so much more difficult because it's like 13 or 14 hands by the time you have the customs people people in a different time zone for sure people in seeking different languages different companies different laws that that are involved much much more complex but so i think it's great that you have your roots in that international because it'll help you as you start to as we're going to have the same problems on the domestic side and you can say hey look i came from the big leagues over here where the where the <laughs> i shouldn't say big leagues in terms of importance but in big leagues in terms of complexity and players involved yeah the the domestic the u.s domestic side is tends to be the transactions are not nearly as complex but the frequency and the right. time period in which they happen are much more intense a lot, lot right? more so you know you know it's the same thing when we, when we talk to parcel companies right and they've got you know orders of magnitude more more volume but orders of magnitude, less complexity in the data, right? It's just like a package. They don't care what's in it. They don't have to, you're not going, you know, when you when you mail a FedEx envelope, they don't ask you what the SKU is inside and try to give you a landed cost and all of these things. So each market between the parcel, the trucking and the, and the international freight is, is got its own dynamics and challenges. And what we realized was trying to service them all at once you know, while certainly we do a lot of truck-related activity, it's on the back of a backbone that's really meant for this multiplayer, many systems kind of environment. Excellent, excellent. So I'm going to ask you a question, answer in any order you want. What's next for you? What's next for Chain IO? And what's next for this industry? And you can define that any way you want. <laughs> now, 
I would say what's next for me is keeping my heads down, head down for the next uh, five years and getting this thing uh, to the point where, you know, our goal is for somebody in some company in the future to walk into their boss office and say, I don't want to use Chain.io. It's old and it's boring. And I found this new startup and the boss to go, no, just use Chain.io. It's, it's the way that this just works, right? <laughs> to be as, we want to be as boring as MasterCard. Right. As big as MasterCard and as boring as MasterCard. That's that's you're like, no no no, I want to use PayPal and your boss goes, stop it. Just, no, just, no, no, just no. use the credit card. Right. So that's what's next for me is to just focus on that and stay highly focused and 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 help, you know, enable my team to do the right thing. For the industry, we just crossed eight billion people on this planet. And the number one thing that's on my mind is that over the last 30 years, we've had an incredible amount of stability in the way we think about businesses and the way we think about supply chains, and that's changing. And we all need to be prepared for a world where environmental, social, political complexities drift into everything we do. And this idea of building supply chains once a year or once a, once a decade versus having a self-reconfiguring supply chain based on that nervous system that adapts and has local sourcing and more suppliers and more things crossing borders and more things moving in weird ways that we didn't think about. That dynamic world is what tech can create. And it's certainly what we need in a world where you don't know what the next calamity is going to be, but you know that there's going to be one. So that's my view of the industry is that we've, we're just at the, we're at day zero of having to become more agile and that's exciting. Well, and, and this, your system allows us get, and by the way, we, we've all been at places where you go change, changing this is never going to happen because it is too damn hard. And what you're kind of allowing enabling, I should say, is we can make change without it being, you know, career ending and millions of dollars and a pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to have to. And the, and the, you know, everyone says you can't until you don't have a choice, right? So I'm sure there were people, the big box stores who said, we cannot do buy online, pick up in store, right? And then within six weeks of the lockdown, you Bam. can pull your car in front <laughs> of a, a, a Home Depot or a Lowe's and, and it's done, right? So you know, what is it? necessity is the mother of invention. And we're going to have a lot of necessity based on the the way the world is today versus the way it was five years ago. Excellent. So what I'll do is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile, link to your website and a link to anything else your marketing people give us if you have webinars coming up or whatever. <laughs> and um, what conferences do you guys get to? So we will, I think we were just at Gartner, and then in the first quarter of, of 23 would be Manifest, and then we're, ah, I'll see you there. I see it Manifest. Uh, that's where trucking and international people spend two days trying to figure out what each other do. And then we'll be at Trans-Pacific Maritime at the end of the quarter as well, which is which is sort of our big our big TPM Tech, that's which out we're sponsoring is is sort of the big tech show out in LA. Yeah, attached nice. to TPM. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah, I'll see it manifest. I just actually talked to Courtney yesterday. She's going to come on my podcast and talk about they're going to get awesome. they're getting ready no. to release some of the speakers, and uh, it's uh, it's going to be even better than last year. So I'll, I look forward to seeing. I'm really seeing excited. You. So one last thing, and I'm putting you on the spot. I've not asked anyone else this yet. You're the first. Uh oh. <laughs> Who should I interview? When it, people you know, not at your company. 
who should I interview? Who should you interview? Another interesting guy like yourself. That is a that is an interesting question to ask. I'm not going to call this person out by name because they have a government job, but what I'm going to tell you is that you should be talking to people at the Department of Transportation about the initiatives that they're working on to help understand the supply chain going forward. And I can I can share a few names with you, but the the people in the federal government right now, you know, that I've had the opportunity to talk to both Congress and, you know, working for the administration are really, you know, for all the noise that we hear about politics in Washington, the people on the ground doing the work are doing some incredible work to make sure that we never end under we never end up in a situation we were in two years ago ever again. And there are some really interesting conversations to be had because having the luxury of meeting with these people day to day, you know, and going down to DC and spending some time and, and, and giving them some some of my input, you know, they've got some really hard workers in the federal government that are really trying to do the oh, right yeah. thing. Oh yeah. And I think I think so often the um I'm not a big fan of big government, but I think the Department of Transportation, the maritime people we need them. We need them to put some oh, guardrails yeah. up. And and by the way, I would also say this is my experience with Food Safety Modernization Act and ELD and some of these other things. They are trying to reach out to industry and be connected so they don't create a law or an act that is impossible for us to live with. Yep. And occasionally they do. Yes, occasionally yes. we have to reel it back. <laughs> you know, some of that happens on a regular basis. But you know, the people, the actual staffers, the people doing the work. Uh, are, are amazing. Well, hook me up. I, there, I'll share Brian. some names. <laughs> so there's there's some reasons you don't you know I don't want to throw those people under the bus right now, but uh, they uh, you know they are doing some awesome work. Excellent, Brian. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, you coming on my podcast, and I love what you guys are doing. It's absolutely a, a much needed. I think everybody who's listening, who's been a shipper, who's been a software guy, who's um, it all in the supply chain goes oh. Finally, that's what we need. I know yeah, there's no, happy. a solution. We're happy to be there. the ones doing the hard, digging the ditches for everybody. Yes. So. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.